you go ahead and grab it and turn with me to John chapter 6, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. Man, what a song. (laughs) What a testimony that is. I don't know about you. Like, I don't know everything that you've experienced in your life. I don't, I don't even know a fraction of what you've experienced just in this week. I mean, for all I know, some of you might be sitting here thinking today already feels like it's been a long day. Uh, but I do know uh, that we have a God who has shown us extraordinary grace. He has shown us extravagant mercy and has shown us faithfulness beyond beyond measure. And if you don't know him, like if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, my only hope today is really just to introduce you to him. Uh, That's been my prayer all week. Like even if you've been in church all of your life, like maybe you've been a 52 Sunday a year church attender for your entire life, it is entirely possible that you have done that and yet you still do not truly know our Lord and our Savior. And, And so I, like you may have even been on a mission trip. That's possible. You might have gone and put a roof on a house somewhere. You might have helped do a VBS up in New York or anything. It could have been anywhere on the planet. My, my only hope today, what I've been begging God for today, is that you would be introduced to Jesus. And if you've known him, maybe you'd be reintroduced to him again for the first time. So if you have your Bible again, let's take these and, and let's go to John 6. That's where we are in our, on our journey through this gospel. We've reached this point so far, and so let's... Would you stand with me and let's tune our hearts to hear from the Lord this morning. This is a familiar passage. This is a real familiar passage. Jesus is continuing his ministry in Galilee. That's, that's where he's been. We're going to see a big jump in time here. Uh, but uh, last time we saw him healing a crippled man, we, we've seen all that happen. And we've seen his authority question, and that is what has led us to this moment. This is John 6, starting in verse 1. After this... Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the, barley, from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Again, Heavenly Father, we come to you uh, dependent 
on you. We come to you desperate for you. We come to you today with all sorts of things in our world. We are distracted. We are conflicted. We are hurting. Some of us might might be wondering why in the world we're actually here this morning. We might be thinking about all the other things that we have to do just to keep our heads above the water. And so I pray that you would come and minister to our hearts today. I pray that you would speak to us even in these moments. That you would give us ears to hear. That you would give us eyes to see. That by your Spirit you would come and awaken our souls this morning. Don't let this be just another exercise in, in cold religion. God, I pray that wouldn't be true. We need you to work in us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be on the side of that hill that day? I mean, most of the time when I read through a passage of Scripture, I want to just be as transparent as I can with you for just a minute. When I read through a passage of Scripture, and it really doesn't matter which passage it is, uh, my natural inclination is to see that like in a vacuum. And and what I mean by that is I I tend to see a passage of Scripture and just sort of disconnect it from from reality. It's my natural inclination, just kind of see it as like a story. And what am I trying to learn from that? Like, what's the moral of this story? What am I supposed to do with that? That's the way I tend to, to see it. My tendency, and I have to fight against that in this life, I really do, is, is just to see it as a story. And I'll, I'll play it out for you here. Like, like a passage like this one, the, the only miracle story that's recorded in all four of the Gospels, this, this one right here, all four of the Gospels record this one, is a story that seems so foreign. Like it seems so alien to me in, in almost every regard. The idea that just going out to a random hill and, and, and sitting there and talking. I don't have time to even go to a hill to begin with in my life. We have made our world so busy. We're running from one thing to another. The idea of having an afternoon to just sit on a hill and be still and be quiet is, is so foreign to me. The idea that a random group of people, a crowd this large, would just follow a man out to that hill is also a foreign concept to me. Everything about this just screams of a world that I don't know, a world that I don't live in. That's how my mind went for three days this week. So God, I don't even know if I know this world that you're talking about here. It's like standing in a foreign country. If you've ever experienced this, a few years back, I, I, I was on a, a mission trip to uh, Ukraine. Yeah, Ukraine. And on the way back, we had a layover in Vienna, and so we got to go into Vienna, which if you've ever been to Vienna, it's the most amazing city on, on the planet as far as I'm concerned. It was amazing, and we were there, and we are, you know, just tourists, um, got our cameras, I mean, just the most prototypical dorky-looking tourists that you can imagine. And, but we're in this city, and all the people of Austria, all the people of Vienna, they're just going about their ordinary business. They're going to dinner. They're, they're on their way home from work. They're, they're sitting in the cafe. They, and they all looked amazing, best-dressed people on the planet in Vienna, okay? Everybody looked like they came out of a magazine. It was, it was unbelievable. And I'm, I'm there in, like, my, my Crocs and my, uh, my shorts that have paint on them and stuff, and it was like, oh, man, who are we? I, I felt so out of place in that moment. And even if I had looked the part, my accent 
which I don't hear, but I know they would, uh, would sound really kind of country, a bumpkin to them probably. So they'd say, who is this guy? And then my, my, my cultural expectations, everything would make me just stand out. And, and it'd be so clear that I do not belong there. I'd be clearly an outsider. You see, that's, that's almost how this passage feels to me. It feels like I'm standing in a foreign world where nothing makes sense. And that's why this passage has created, at least historically, has created such a problem. It's because it presents this extraordinary account, this almost unbelievable account, in just the most ordinary of ways. John gives us such detail in there that it's really disarming. And that's why for centuries people have been trying to explain away the supernatural reality of what's being communicated here, of what's being told, because there must be some explanation outside of the fact that this was a miracle. And so what has become a popular way of interpreting this, at least among like social justice warriors, and listen, I'm for social justice. I, I, I don't want to ever, we, we believe in justice. Our God is a God who sits on a throne of, of righteousness and justice. But what a lot of social justice warriors, people who say this is our, this is our foremost uh, priority in the world, what they do is they take this little boy, Okay, the little boy or child, we actually don't know if he was a young boy or not. We know he was a boy. And, and they take him and they make him the moral of the story. They say, look at what he did with just five loaves and two fishes. I heard Frank Barker say that was uh, two fish sandwiches and an extra piece of bread. That he took. Look at what this little boy was able to accomplish with so little. And so what we're going to do is, is we're going to win the battle against Satan, sin, and death one lunch at a time. That's, how, that's what we're going to do. And so what you and I are going to do today, I'm excited to tell you we're launching into a new initiative. We're calling it One Lunch at a Time. All right? We have, uh, we've got bumper stickers that we've printed up for the back of your car. You can get them on the way out. They say One Lunch at a Time. And we, if we're getting the t-shirt cannon fixed. It's broken right now. But next week, we're going to blast you with t-shirts that say one lunch at a time so that when you go out into this community, you're going to wear that t-shirt proudly one lunch at a time. Somebody's going to be like, what, do you, what is this? What is this one lunch at a time business? And you are going to be able to give them a custom-made Chick-fil-A gift card because we don't eat on Sundays, right? Because that's, you, you, that's, that's how it works. We only do Chick-fil-A, all right? So Chick-fil-A gift card, and, and it's gonna, we had them custom-made. They say one lunch at a time. So even the, the worker at Chick-fil-A is going to know this. So we are going to attack this community with that. We're going to redeem this community with that. And we are going to take the hill for the Lord, right? Like we're going to go at this. We're going to go take the land one lunch at a time. I mean, we laugh, but I've heard that sermon. I heard that sermon at FCA when I was at University of South Carolina. We didn't have bumper stickers. We didn't have t-shirts, but it was that sermon. And if I'm honest, I've even felt a little bit motivated. I was like, yeah, dude, where's my bumper sticker? Let's go. One lunch at a time. You're not going to get that sermon today. And I don't have bumper stickers. Um, We can't afford them. (laughs) I looked into it. We aren't going to do that because... And it's not because there's nothing... It's not because there's something wrong with helping the hungry. We're not against helping the hungry. You should do that. You should take that initiative. You should feed the hungry. You should clothe the naked. You should, you should come alongside the brokenhearted. You should do those things, absolutely. We're not going to do that today, though. We're not going to do that with this passage because it's not what this passage is about. And to say that it is is to rob Jesus of his glory. 
We want to change the world, but we want to do it the right way. So there's two things that we're going to focus on in this passage, just two today. We're breaking from Presbyterian tradition, just two-point sermon today, okay? Buckle up, right? It's about to get wild in here. Um, The first thing that we're going to focus on is the supremacy of Christ in providing for his people. That's the first thing, the supremacy of Christ and how he provides for his people, all right? That's the first thing. That's what we're going to see on the side of the hill as he feeds that multitude. And the second thing we're going to look at is the supremacy of Christ as he leads his people. So it's how he provides for and then how he leads. Those are the two things that we're going to see. And we're going to look at it from the perspective of seeing the supremacy of Christ. Now, the details I already told you in this first section are extraordinary. John describes this scene in such a way that we can almost put ourselves on the ground there. If you, if you can just read that passage and really focus in on all the details, it will kind of blow your mind. Like we, we know when this is happening. We know when. We know the season of the year. We know it's around the time of Passover. We know where this is happening. It's happening beside the Sea of Galilee and beyond that. John tells us that in that time period, it was called the Sea of Tiberias because that's who it was named after during that season. The Romans had this habit of just renaming everything. And so Herod Antipas, the very one who had killed John the Baptist, had renamed this the Sea of Tiberias in order to honor Caesar. So we know when, we know where, we know why. We know that the people had seen Jesus doing extraordinary things, and they've come out to see what he's going to do next. They're they're interested in the spectacle. We know who is there. And like we know specifics. We know that Jesus didn't just ask a random disciple. He asked Philip. He asked Philip where they could buy food to feed the people. And we know that it was Andrew. And if you didn't know who Andrew was, John says it's Simon Peter's brother. We know that he was the one who hijacked the kid's lunch and brought it over to Jesus as if to demonstrate how ridiculous a proposition it would be that they might possibly feed all of these people. By the way, I'm convinced he took that kid's lunch. It never says the kid offered it. It just says, Andrew's like, hey, I'm just saying he's small. We could probably take it from him. We could take his fish sandwiches. Andrew took that meager little amount of food and he brought it to Jesus, not as a demonstration of faith. He said, this is what we have. This is all that we have. And then he said, but what are they for so many? You see, Jesus wasn't caught off guard here. He knew what was going on. He knew exactly what was going on the whole time. And he knew that this was an opportunity to show his supremacy. Not in eloquent speech, not in words of power. We have very limited uh, recording from what Jesus said during this entire encounter. But it was an opportunity to display his supremacy and how he provides for his people, motivated by compassion. That's what one of the other gospels says, that he had compassion on the people. He didn't run and hide, even though we know that they had go, gone there for a time of rest. I mean, Jesus had tried to get a little 24-hour vacation with his disciples, just a little time away, and here comes this mob. He didn't run away from them, even though that's probably what I would have done. But lifting up his eyes, this is what we're told, then and, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? You see, his, 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 his compassion wasn't superficial. And we can fall into that, right? 
It was, mere, it was more than mere sympathy. He didn't just feel bad for them that they were going to be hungry. It was motivated to, he was motivated to do something. We, I tend to fall into sympathy. I see someone, I say, oh, man, I sure hope it works out for that guy. I really hope somebody comes along who can do something for him. Notice that he didn't say to Philip, what are all these people going to do? How are they going to feed themselves tonight? He didn't ask that. He didn't say, what are they going to do for themselves? No, his immediate question to Philip, and he was very specific. He asked, where are we? Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? You see, his compassion led to action. We see that Jesus wants to provide. Like he actively wanted to provide. Nobody had to come with him with a suggestion, hey, these people might be hungry. He looked at them, saw there was a need, and he wants to do something about it. He empathizes with them. He understands them. He understands their need, and he provides for them. And he does so in such a way that it absolutely defies explanation. As they sat there on the side of that hill looking at the crowd, there was, there was no natural, there was no reasonable way for the needs of the crowd to be met. None. Like, there are no food trucks sitting out there, right? I mean, that's a new commodity here in Columbia. We've kind of gotten into the food truck game. And so now every time you go to some sort of outdoor activity, the food trucks come in and, and we line up and we eat the tacos or, or whatever that they are selling. And, or the barbecue uh, bus is my favorite. We, we line up and they give you the best food on earth and it, it changes your world for a moment. But then you're hungry later, right? But that, they didn't have that. And even if they did, like even if they were able to scrounge up enough money to pay for all the food. There's no Costco back then. There's, no, there's nobody waiting there with masses of food to feed upwards of maybe 10,000 people. We know there are 5,000 men. We don't know exactly how many women and children are there, but, but most estimate somewhere around 10 to 15,000 total people are out there. There's no, there's no big market to go to to just feed all. This is an impossible task that Jesus has just presented to Philip. Where are we to buy bread so that we can feed these people? The only reasonable, the only rational answer that Philip could have given to Jesus in that moment is there is nowhere. You need to drop that idea, Jesus. There is nowhere. There is no way. There is no how. We cannot do this. It cannot be done. It's just too much. This problem is too big for us. And listen to me. This is how every single one of us comes to Jesus. Every single one of us. Now, most of us don't necessarily come to him uh, physically hungry. I, 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 I want to confess, I've never gone an entire day in my life genuinely worried about whether or not I was going to get to eat. And I want you to know that that's a blessing that's not a right. Okay, The fact that I can sit at a table with my family in the evening, say a blessing and re- return thanks, however you phrase that, and eat a meal is an absolute blessing. That is not a right that we are guaranteed. The fact that you are alive today is not a right that you are owed. That is a blessing. It is a gift. It's a tremendous blessing. But we all come to Jesus with a need that we cannot satisfy. We, Every single one of us comes to him with a void that we cannot fill. We all come to Jesus with this impossible task in one hand, and if I'm honest, a pretty doubtful heart in the other. You know, this passage has a lot in common with the story of Israel in the Exodus. Like the crowd on the side of the hill that day, the people of Israel were helpless. They were needy. 
They were slaved. I mean, they've been trapped in slavery in Egypt for over 400 years in a foreign pagan land. They could not escape. That was impossible. They couldn't escape. Egypt was the most powerful empire that the world had ever seen. And so after 400 years, they could not even dream of freedom. The idea of liberty had faded generations ago. They were resigned to their position as slaves of that empire. And yet, God sent Moses, right? God sends Moses, and he used Moses as an instrument of redemption. Moses became the great liberator of Israel. He became the great prophet of Israel. The Jews held Moses way up here. He, Moses, was the, Moses was the apex He was the prototype for any sort of savior. God worked through Moses to do what was impossible. Now, apart from Jesus Christ, we find find ourselves in a position much like the Israelites, in need of far more than a picnic of barley cakes and pickled fish. By the way, that's, that's peasant food. If you read any commentaries on this, they will spend forever talking about how peasant food is, is what barley cakes and pickled fish were. That's probably what that, what that fish was. We come with this impossible task. We come with an impossible need. When we, we need someone to do something that we are unable to do ourselves. Just like Philip, this is not possible. Because of my sin, because of my sin, I owe, I owe my life, because I've gone my own way. The wages that I have earned for myself by my sin is death. That's what I deserve. That's what the check says for me. When the the waitress comes to my table, she says, here's what you owe, and it is my life. That's what I owe because of my sin. That's what I bring to the table. When I come to Jesus, I come to him literally with my death certificate in my hand. That's how he receives me written by my own hand, poured out in the ink of my own sin. That's me. That's, my only, that's the only truth that I can tell you about our lives apart from Christ. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us. Paul tells us that we all once lived in the passions of our own flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, that's terrifying. Okay? Ch- to be a child of wrath, that's terrifying. That's really, really bad news. And by God's grace, that's not where the passage stops. Paul never hides the truth. He never hides the bad news. We were by nature children of wrath. That was our default position. That's how we come uh, from the factory, all right? We, we were talking about, uh, our, we have a birthday in our family today. We were talking about that birth this morning. Uh, as sweet as she was and as precious as she was, as she just slid on into the world, she was a wicked little sinner, okay? Um, and she needs Jesus in her life just like we do. I mean, we celebrated and we ran around the hospital. Telling, she's here, she's here. And we had to wake up people who'd come because it got a little late. And we woke them up and we said, here he is. And they were like, great. She'll be there in the morning, right? Yeah, and so that was, this was the reality, but this is how she came. She came beautiful and healthy, and, but very, very needy because she came just like we do. She got her sin honestly because she got it from us. That's the one thing I can claim about her. She looks just like her mama. The only thing I can claim that I gave my daughter is her sin. This is pretty sad. 
Now, the passage doesn't stop there. He never hides that bad news. He never hides that truth from us. But the passage continues. It says, but God. That's one of some of the best words in the New Testament. But God. It's Ephesians 2, 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He says, by grace you have been saved. You see, that's the good news. That's the supremacy of Christ in providing for his people. It's that he does the impossible. He doesn't just feed us. He doesn't just clothe us. He doesn't just let us hang out in his yard. No, he loves us. And because of that love, he does the impossible for us. He gives us life. He pays our unpayable debt. You see, at the cross... When Jesus gave his life to pay for our sins, to pay for my sins, he didn't just make a way for us to be comfortable. He made a way for us to live. And so in that, he became the true and better liberator. He became the greater Moses, who doesn't just march us out into the desert, but but welcomes us into eternal life. He did what we could never do ourselves. That's the good news of the gospel. And he shows this in the next section as he demonstrates his supremacy and how he leads his people. Look back at verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. One of the most obvious statements in all of Scripture is that when the disciples saw this man walking across the water, it says they were frightened. Other, other gospels say they thought he was a ghost. Like their default position was not that this is Jesus walking across the water, but that it was actually a ghost. That was where their minds went. Whatever is happening in that moment is so weird that they go, it's got to be a ghost. And they were frightened. They were frightened. In Christ, we are eternally saved. We can never forget that. We must hold on to that. Romans 10, 9 says, right, if, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, right? That's what it says. That's what it says. And then down in Romans 10, 13, we're told that everyone who calls, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That means that Jesus has a big old boat and he wants to fill it up with his people. We cannot forget that. We cannot forget that because there, we know that darkness will rear its ugly head. Uh, We do know that. We have seen that. We have felt that. We have traveled through that. We know that the storms will get rough in this life. We know that the sea will get choppy. They will continue to gather against us. And what we see in this last section is that for the believer, for the disciple of Jesus Christ, if you have committed your life to him, if you have have by faith entrusted your life to, to him, for you... We are given a seat in his boat. We're brought into a new ark, so to speak. You see, that's what the church is. The church is like this 
great big New Testament, New Covenant ark that we are brought into. Now, we don't necessarily come two by two, okay? But, but the church of Jesus Christ is a new ark for his people. It's a, it's a new haven of, of both preservation and perseverance. As those who have been redeemed, we are brought into his church. To separate Jesus Christ from his church is a great error in, in Western thinking. P- people who say they love Jesus and hate the church are created, creating an impossible living situation because it's for the church, according to Ephesians 5, that Jesus gave his life. In that passage, every man is told to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's how the church is described. It's the bride of Jesus. It's his wife, the bride of the Lamb of God. To say, I love the groom and hate the bride puts you in a really tough position. And the church does not exist outside of the world, but in the midst of the world. The ark doesn't float on an ocean far distant. It floats on the sea that is this world, and this world is not safe. It's not. I mean, you know that, right? This world is a broken place. And while look, we see beauty in it, listen, I've stood on mountaintops and seen the clouds fill the valleys and thought it doesn't get any better than this. And I've sat on the lake at, at daybreak and seen the sun rise and thought, man, this is as beautiful as it gets. And then that night I was on that same lake and saw the sun set and went, okay, you win. It's better. I've seen beauty beyond description in this world. So we would say, yes, it is beautiful. We just taught with the kids. What does God want to redeem? He wants to redeem everything. He wants to make all things new. That's his plan for this world. It's not to suck us out of here, leave it to blow up one day, and then create a whole new thing. No, he's going to redeem this world. When your kid says, what's heaven going to be like? Point to where you are and say the best version of this that you can imagine. Everything beyond that is pure speculation. And we don't know when Jesus is going to come back, so please don't ever like buy a book telling you that that's, that's going to happen in 2015 or 18 or 19 or whatever. There's been a lot of people wrong on that. What we know is that Jesus is going to make all things new. But right now, right now this world's a whole lot like the Sea of Galilee. Groaning together in the pains of childbirth. That's how Paul describes. He describes this world as groaning, aching, screaming, shouting. The world groans for healing. It groans for redemption. We see it. It's just just like that Sea of Galilee that was so prone to storms. Again, if you want to look in your study Bible, it'll tell you how the Sea of Galilee sits at this sea level and, and the mountains around it create this sort of vacuum and the wind comes and it makes it rough and choppy all the time. I, we could do a whole lesson on that if we wanted to. All I'll tell you is the Sea of Galilee got rough every night. That's what we know. Warm water, cool winds, it got messy. That's the Sea of Galilee. It's just like our world. It's never a matter of if it's going to get messy. It's a matter of when. And maybe from what direction? And so in that way, we can really understand the position of the disciples out on the water. We know exactly what they're experiencing because in this world, there are troubles. There are difficulties. That's not a possibility. That is an absolute promise. Just like the disciples who have been rowing for miles, there are times when our bodies and our souls just feel like the burden is more than we are able to bear. We feel like the task is beyond our own limitations. 
But we see here that Jesus never leaves us. We see that he never forsakes us. And I think it's in Mark where it talks about Jesus being up on the hill and he's watching this play out. He sees the disciples down on the water. He sees them struggling and he's praying for them in that moment. And then in that moment, he comes and walks towards them on the water. He never forsakes us. He doesn't just stay up on the hill, just passively watching this whole thing. But he comes to us in our times of need because he is our true deliverer. I, I don't have bumper stickers for you today. And the truth is, uh, we don't have any t-shirts for you either. Sorry for that disappointment. Um, I know Southern church people love a t-shirt. Um, we certainly don't have an awesome cannon to shoot them at you, although I'm going to fight for that one. We want that. Um, all that we have to offer you is Jesus. That's it. If you know him as your Savior, I, I, I know the boat might seem a little rocky at times. Like it might seem a little rough upon the waters, but to you, Jesus says, it is I. Do not be afraid. It is I. Do not be afraid. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you are not yet walking with Him, not yet trusting in Him for your eternal life, He makes that same promise to you too. He promises the same thing to you. He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. You know, that phrase, it is I, is unique. It's a little bit odd that they don't translate it this way, and I kind of wish they would. That same phrase is translated a different way in the Greek Old Testament. It's two words instead of three. It is I is the same thing as I am. You see, when he comes walking across the water, he doesn't come as just a man. He doesn't come as a cool friend who's got some neat gifts. He comes as God himself. He doesn't come to be another body added to your boat, another burden for you to carry. He doesn't come as just another crew member to help out in rowing. Jesus has never been and will never be your co-pilot, I promise you. He doesn't come to you asking you to carry him. He's promising that if you will trust in him by faith, he will carry you. And just like the disciples learned on the water that night, he's enough. He's enough. I hope that we'll walk in that. I know the storms are going to come this week. Like, I already know that. Last Sunday, I said that same thing. I said that same thing, not having a clue what was coming this week. And a storm came. But he's carried us. He's brought us back to, to this place on this day. And he's worthy of glory. He's worthy of praise because he's good. Because he's good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that you're not surprised. That you don't get caught off guard. God, I'm surprised every single day. I'm surprised moment by moment. It seems like the it seems like I'm perpetually on some sort of some sort of beach. Although it's not vacation, it's just the shifting sands around me. My feet are never quite underneath me. Everything's always shifting, always changing, always always providing a new challenge. This world seems intent on distracting me from the fact that you're God, that you've got us, and that you're enough. Lord, I pray that this week, that this day, 
maybe even just for the next hour, that we would be able to truly walk with you, that we would put our trust in you for now, for just this moment. God, if there's, and I pray that if there's somebody in here today who does not know you, that you wouldn't let them leave here and that be the case. That by your spirit, you would allow them, that you would awaken them, that you would quicken them to know you and to trust in you. Lord, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.